we'll try and have a 45 minute um, panel discussion now and try and link in some of the questions that we've been receiving uh, during these talks. Uh, just, just to reiterate, thank you very much to all your talks, uh, I think providing people, me, but also the wider audience out there with some incredible in-depth analysis and understanding of what's going on. Um, which is critical if we try to try to make sense of this situation that we're seeing in the Middle East. And as I said before, this is a very dangerous moment, clearly based upon what Vanessa has been telling us, but also in the other talks. Um, I guess maybe just to kick it off, I mean, we started um, at the very beginning, obviously, with me and talking about 9-11. 9-11 is a, a structural deep event, and it's one she described as a false flag. It's a self-inflicted wound in order to get a series of wars, regime change wars starting, the restructuring of the Middle East, and so on. I mean, going to October 7, obviously, we're not thinking it, the evidence that's suggesting it's that type of false flag event. But it does seem to be, from what a lot of you are saying, that sort of, you know, there is um, certainly Israel is trying to exploit what happened on October 7 for its own strategic purposes. Um, and I guess that raises, you know, the first question, does this look like a, a, a lie hop, a let it happen on purpose as being the most kind of likely scenario in this case. And just and in addition to that, I'll put that out to everyone, but in addition to that, we've got a question uh, from somebody saying that, well, if if Israel let it happen and they knew it was going to occur and they have sought strategic advantage by uh, exploiting it in order to do what they're doing in Gaza, what exactly, because Hamas presumably and Palestinian resistance would have known this, um, what exactly is their strategic motivation in, in this Um action that was taken so just to start us off i mean and um does anyone want to pick up on that on sort of is this looking like the most likely assessment of this This is a lie hop and it's been exploited they knew it was going to happen and they're using it to uh, pursue uh, you know removal of palestinians from gaza for example is that the most likely scenario that we have in terms of understanding what happened Yes, I would I mean, say it's something something like Aaron because he was yeah. most focused on that. Yeah, I mean it. It looks apparently like they would have let some attack happen, and that the response was rather slow, and that they also used, uh, you know, massive, indiscriminate violence, uh, you know, to 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 attack the Hamas and others. Uh, in order to have a higher death count because they preferred that to um, hostages. So, I mean, this the way that they have exaggerated it and used it this way, I think that they would have, uh, there's, there's a lot of reason to think that they let it happen and that they came in and even added a lot more. I don't know that, I, I would guess, honestly, that it was the plan, the objective of Hamas and these other parties that had joined not to uh, attack civilians, uh, not to massacre civilians, but actually to take hostages. I think they wanted hostages. That's logical. And that does seem to be what we hear from the hostages. So that makes the most sense to me. I don't, I, if I'm not saying there were no atrocities and I can't know everything that happened, but the fact that all of these things have been debunked. And even when they come out with these rape stories, you know, as Max Blumenthal has done very well, they're actually very thinly sourced and there's nothing really to hang them on. So they, the way that they're being treated so credulously, despite a much real um, confirmation in terms of evidence, is really is really notable. Now, on the side of Hamas, why they would have done it, I think that preventing um, 
the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel may have been the more pressing thing for them. Um, I think that in a, if, if Israel is not able to, to really go forward with this, uh, as they had planned, if they're not able to massively ethnically cleanse the, um, the Palestinians in Gaza, then I think it will redound to Israel's uh, strategic defeat massively because they have lost so much legitimacy here. I don't even think if they liquidate the Palestinians that this will be a win for them because their position in the world mm -hmm. depends on U.S. hegemony, U.S. control of the, of the dollar, and U.S. as the global bully. And that is all crumbling. I think that is why, partially why they did what they did, along with Benjamin Netanyahu's political fortunes. So if Hamas, even if, even if all of Gaza gets wiped out, Hamas may actually be, uh, they may actually win in terms of destroying Israel, because I don't see how Israel can be viable in the post-U.S. unipolar world as a, as a, a pariah uh, and as a, the, the perpetrator of unspeakable crimes, of genocidal crimes that we haven't seen. Something like this ha on this scale happened in Indonesia in 1965, but there wasn't TikTok videos. It wasn't the whole world watching it saying, can you stop this? And the U.S. saying, no, this is not happening. What you're seeing is not what you're seeing. This isn't what it is. Uh, we, we're just, you know, we can't do anything about it. So I think, it's a, I think it's a disaster, but it's also very dangerous because I don't know that the people in charge of the U.S. war machine are going to suffer this defeat gladly along with Ukraine. It seems like the U.S. empire is on its way. So uh, kind of a let it happen, but one that has backfired or is backfiring now effectively. Atif. Yeah, I, yeah, I would like to add a couple of things. First, uh, this is not the first time Israel has invaded uh, Gaza and has uh, come in and out several times before. I doubt very much that whatever plan they are executing now, this was not part of a plan that they have prepared for. There is evidence they have been talking to the Egyptian government trying to transfer the Palestinians into Sinai or even into a new uh, city they created uh, uh, in the desert. So to some extent, the a plan of the Israelis to empty Gaza for the reasons I've mentioned and for the other reasons that uh, my colleagues have mentioned uh, is there, and, and there is no question about it. Uh, Israel is seeking economic advantage and exploiting uh, the opportunities that this emptying of Gaza would, prevent, would present them with. Why would the Palestinians do it? I mean, I think Aaron has already mentioned the idea that it seems every Arab country, well, I won't say every, but at least the Gulf countries seem to have accepted this Abrahamic initiatives and they're making their ways. Maybe Saudi Arabia did not declare its agreement with Israel, but certainly it never denied it and at some time mentioned that things are really moving in the direction of a greater normalization. Mm. So to some extent, what the Palestinians have done have been motivated by the fact that uh, the Palestinian question all of a sudden has become on the back burner of the Arab agenda. So what they've tried to do is basically, even if Israel knew and they knew might not really succeed totally, is that they basically and fundamentally uh, turn the tables around in such a way that the Palestinian question that has been put on the back burner to simmer in the background is now on the forefront and has, to a great extent, derailed whatever agreement uh, 
the Arab states, whether it is Sudan or Maghreb or uh, Egypt or Jordan and Bahrain and the UAE, I think to some extent uh, it drove a wedge between the government and the people. And I don't believe that the uh, Arab governments are now in the same comfortable position of making an accommodation with Israel before uh, that was happening before the events that would be now. Mm. Indeed. Richard. Uh, yes, just to um, supplement uh, what Aaron and Atif have said, with which I agree, uh, we should remember that before October 7th ever happened, this was described as the most extreme government ever <laughs> to emerge in Israel. And what that translated into, in my understanding, is that it was intent on giving the settler violence a green light on the West Bank and creating a situation where the final, the end game of the Zionist project could be carried out. And I think contextualizing what's happened after October 7th, uh, even if you grant the validity of uh, Israel believing that it was uh, subject to a, a surprise attack, uh, even if you grant that, the illogic of their response suggests that they had other priorities in mind, both the territorial pri priorities of uh, expanding to greater Israel and the economic priorities that Atif has uh, uh, described to us, so that this didn't come out of a vacuum, as the Secretary General said. And you, must rem you should remember the uh, speech that Netanyahu gave in the General Assembly of the UN uh, a couple of weeks before uh, this attack, which, wa which was highlighted by showing a map without Palestine on it. And there undoubtedly was some impulse on the Palestinian resistance uh, movement to say, we have to act now, or this we will be subject to a fait accompli. And so the uh, historical timing, even if uh, the deep structure, structural event dimension is uh, present, uh, reinf they re it reinforces that and creates this very dangerous present situation, uh, which is that Israel can neither win nor lose. Hmm. See, and what does it do when it's confronted by that? It exp the only thing it can do is widen the combat zone by bringing Iran somehow into the conflict and mm -hmm. therefore 
bringing the U.S. in as an alternative to its ceding control over the whole region. So this is a uh, worrisome moment in a horrible crisis situation from, if looked at from a humanitarian uh, and Palestinian perspective. And uh, only, I think, civil society, a surge of civil society activism can challenge these forces that are seeking the perpetuation of American post-Cold War unipolar hegemony. Mm. Yeah, certainly kind of the feeling I get is this sort of this the weakening empire and increasingly extreme desperate actions and so on being taken both the US and Israel, um, which, you know, what you made earlier creates this very dangerous situation, sort of a, a wounded animal, as it were, um, becomes more and more violent. Um, Kevin, did you want to come in on that, or did you want to just comment on, especially what you heard from in Aaron's presentation, sort of any sort of bits of evidence in there which you would sort of pick up as, yeah, this is very indicative of certainly a let it happen operation. Would you be willing to sort of put your money on the table on that at the moment in terms of thinking, yeah, there's something that's just fairly solid there which we could look to and suggest that, yeah, they at least knew this was going to happen, or as am I pushing yeah. you too hard on that? Yeah, no, when I when I gave the, my talk, I, I mentioned that everything that so far I've seen uh, seems to match the pattern that I've seen with other state crimes. And, uh, and certainly there was foreknowledge on the part of Israel. Um, and, you know, I would say one other thing that uh, I've read about the fact that the uh, operation involved the simultaneous compromising of 29 points on the iron wall, 29 points of a, of a boundary that is so highly uh, observed on a daily basis, um, combined with the foreknowledge of the plan and the, of the exercises that mimic the event, it does very much seem like it was allowed to happen. Uh, if there's more to it than that, I think that we need to uh, just continually reevaluate our perspective based on evidence that, that is revealed. Because as I said, you know, with deep events, the, it's, it's all uh, defined as being hidden. And so it won't be revealed necessarily for, for some time. But I can say I am worried about what Professor Falk has said, that this may be uh, something, uh, and Vanessa has also said, maybe leading to a wider war. And there may be, uh, have been a, a an intention there all along, which is very troubling. Yeah. Vanessa, did, you dropped out there for a, a second. Uh, yeah, did you want to come in on or would you? Yeah, I mean, I think all I wanted to say about the, the Hamas operation, um, and, and I don't know if anybody mentioned that while I kind of disappeared thanks to Syrian internet. Um, was the name of the operation, which is Al-Aqsa Flood, of course. And this is a very important aspect, is the uh, potential 
for the Zionist destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, I think, the third most holy Islamic site in favor of Temple Mount. And so I think this was also so the normalization with Saudi Arabia, which, as I said in my talk, was to effectively bring an end um, to the Palestinian uh, battle for justice, uh, freedom, liberation from an apartheid oppressive settler colonialist entity rule. Um, and then, of course, this ongoing um, invasion, really, of Al-Aqsa and the prevention of worship in Al-Aqsa um, for, for Palestinian Muslims. So I think this was also a very important aspect um, of this operation. Okay, thanks. Um just want to move this on to the question of genocide. So we've got, um, well, we've got probably a fairly straightforward question here, which, which Richard can answer. Well, one question which came in just said, well, um, what do you say to people that this, what do you say to people who say that this is not genocide, it's simply war? Um, I'll just pass that to Richard um, to quickly address before we get on to other issues in relation to the genocide question. Uh well, as I tried to uh, suggest, uh, Israel can't, as the occupying power, has no authority to wage war. It has, an, it has the authority to uh, reestablish uh, its security by reasonable and appropriate means. <laughs> while upholding its primary obligation as the occupying power of protecting, not, de not decimating, the civilian population. The whole uh, uh, emphasis of the Geneva Conventions when it comes to belligerent occupation is the duty of the occupying power to protect the civilian population. And this kind of response that had very little relevance to future Israeli security, in fact, was dysfunctional from that, obviously dysfunctional from that perspective, suggests that it has to be judged on the basis of what kind of operation this was. And given the statements of the Minister of Defense, the Prime Minister, and uh, the religious leaders in the Israeli cabinet, there is no reasonable doubt that the intention was genocidal. And I would be very surprised, even if a relatively conservative International Court of Justice does not agree with that assessment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite incredible. To me. I'm, as you all know, I'm mean, based in Germany and uh, in Berlin, and it's, you know, the German government and certainly the German elite, it's quite remarkable the extent to which they have fallen behind in support of Israel. Um, and it's remarkable to watch and see that there's this blindness to the reality of what's going on. Um, 
on on this question of of and this is linked partly to a question which came in of of what the Israeli population, how it sort of is cut up in terms of its position in relation to what's going on. I mean, clearly, you know, there is going to be some opposition within Israel to what's going on. And I guess you know, this links to a kind of a broader question about where the kind of resistance might come to this. We're witnessing yet again genocide now in the 21st century. Um, you know, are we looking populations in the West, sort of where, where do people feel that those populations are in terms of having realized what's going on, the global audience, the, the South, the global South and so on. Um, but starting off with, you know, what's the sense of the population within Israel for Israelis who are witnessing what's going on? Is there a significant resistance or pushback or is it very limited? Um, is the pushback going to have to come from Western populations or from the global South? Um, where do people see yeah, the pushback coming from against this genocide. Vanessa? Um, if I can um, hop in there. Um, well, I've seen a number of interviews with Alistair Crook, um, who has a wide breadth of experience of Israeli society and the Middle East. And according to him, 80 to 90% of the Israeli population actually believe that uh, the uh, Israeli forces are not doing enough, that they should crack harder on the Palestinians and forces. They perceive that there are no innocents in Gaza. Um, are all people are carrying out acts that, that, you know, were or were not carried out on October the 7th. There is, however, a strong um, pushback against particular Netanyahu, but even against the security services, against the army. Um, I believe now there is a court case um, by the families of those that were killed on October the 7th by um, the IOF helicopters and tanks, both on October the 7th and I think two days after, um, to take them to court for the killing of their relatives. A huge amount of um, fracturing within Israeli society. But as regards the attitudes towards Palestinians, as Alistair has said on a number of occasions, it's a very percentage that, that want an end to it, that want uh, Palestinians ethnically cleansed mm. from all of the occupied territories, including West Bank and Gaza. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder if you, there's always this idea of the rally effect, because it's you know well documented with the kind of rather tedious academic analysis of public opinion in conflict situations. You always get this rally around the flag effect and so on at the beginning of a conflict. It's this instinctive, um, but it tends to ebb over time or weaken and so on as, as a conflict goes on. Um, but you know, maybe this ties into what Richard was saying. You, you have you've had a shift to the right, a very extreme government in Israel, probably with a huge amount of propaganda surrounding that, and the Israeli population being subjected to that. Um, that sort of maybe that's going to be the last place we're going to see sort of serious well, sort of popular. Also, very um, also massive indoctrination. I can't remember the name of the documentary that was very recently released. But a terrifying of indoctrination in the garden upwards, um, which has ensured this this expansion of extremism and expansionism. 
because of course Netanyahu is a revisionist Zionist that goes back to the Yabotinsky cult, um, which was had very close alliances to the Nazis in Ukraine through Simon Petlura, and was is effectively a very supremacist, expansionist um, cult, and so therefore that that's very much what is. Um, filtered through the education system in Israel and it is effectively indoctrinating and programming Israelis into the thinking that they now have. Uh, and just to add a word to that, uh, we should remember mm. that uh, authoritative human rights groups had concluded in the years uh, the five or six years prior to October 7th, that Israel was an apartheid state. And yeah. uh, part of what allows the genocidal uh, narrative to take such a vicious form is the total dehumanization of mm. the Palestinians as human beings uh, yeah. entitled to the protection of law and morality. The language of Netanyahu and uh, Gallant, which talked of the uh, Palestinians as human animals who deserve to be treated as such, uh, was then intensified by other ministers who said, oh, well, they're not even human animals. And it, this kind of dehumanization is integral to a genocidal uh, movement of the sort that we're seeing carried out. And what's significant also is that no significant Israeli voices have challenged it. There's a consensus that may not like Netanyahu and the religious right, but they're not willing to depart from this idea of dehumanization of the Palestinians, which was uh, written into the basic law of Israel in 2018, where it was declared that only the Jewish people have a right of self-determination within the borders of Israel. Hmm. Yeah, the, so it raises this kind of point of, you know, propaganda of war. I mean, proper, in, in wartime, it, it always involves this dehumanization, I guess, sort of picking up on, on Kevin's points about indicators of state crimes against democracy and so on. But you know, war propaganda is... Um, you know, we've seen this, you see it in the First World War, Second World War, and so on. Um, and But I, I'm, I'm betting if you were to do some detailed media analysis of Israeli media, you'd see some pretty terrifying patterns there in terms of precisely that process. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, um, we've got, got a couple of very specific questions, and I, I will, obviously, we'll, we'll run for another 10 minutes uh, up to the, so we've had 45 minutes, but I'm conscious of everybody's time, and you've given an awful lot of your time so far. Got, got a couple of very, very specific questions. Um, one was um, for, for Kevin, actually, in relation to, um, if, if you can detect these events in real time, 
Um, what do you do then? What's the purpose of, that, right. of being able to yeah. do that? So, yeah. I, I yeah. mentioned a little bit about the fact that this is not an ac academic exercise or, or necessarily an, an attempt to you know, uh, document history. It's really for practical purposes for those of us who are individuals living in the world and trying to understand what's going on. And so I gave a couple of examples of, of things we could, we, we could use this perspective for. First of all, uh, to reject uh, narratives that are obviously false, uh, that's going to help us understand what's going on better and be able to make decisions relative to any information we receive for, about it. And also to reject uh, sources of misinformation. So, you know, as we as we watch these events all unfold, we'll see, as we do with with most uh, deep state events, I think we'll see uh, sometimes uh, sources of information that don't appear to be uh, being as forthright as as they could be about the actual facts of what's happening. I don't have an example at the moment on the on a tip of my tongue, but I also gave the, the example, which I think was a very relevant one for certainly for me and, and for many others uh, relative to COVID and that, you know, when when people are caught up in the in the in the middle of a what what really appears to be a false narrative and and they're being forced to do certain things, whether it be locked down or more importantly, accept uh, experimental injections uh, into their bodies. Um, I think that this is the kind of perspective that uh, if they could they could match the narrative to a pattern of, of deception in the past, they might be able to make a better decision for themselves with regard to what's going on today. So that's what I that's what I stated our opportunities to use a perspective that not, doesn't necessarily have every fact nailed down, every T crossed and every I dotted as to exactly what happened. But, but still knowing that we have a deception involved and very likely a state crime in progress. Yeah, and, and for sure, we're definitely in an era now where, you know, a much larger section of the population is, you know, beginning to be switched on to these kind of deep state events and so on. People don't buy into the kind of conspiracy theory smear in the way that they used to and so on. Um, so, you know, there is fertile ground, I think, for people, you know, if they're armed with a kind of more detailed analysis identifiers and so on to to react and then to actually push back and so on. So, um, Art, a specific question um, in relation to um, somebody's asked about if you could try to map out the alternative trade routes the U.S. is aiming to create and how that relates to current alliances in the region. To a great extent, is exploiting and trying to organize the region along these trade. Notice that it's not just a, a random a choice that you pass it through Dubai and from Dubai through Saudi Arabia and Jordan. I mean, it's difficult to uh, forget that they are trying to exploit all these regional arrangements. I mean, you're picking exactly the countries that you want to be involved and to exclude the countries you don't want. Uh, you're bringing in, in Saudi Arabia, you're bringing in uh, UAE, you're excluding Syria, you're excluding Iran. So to a great extent, 
the trade routes are used as a way of reorganizing regional interactions and interests. And in this respect, you know, I don't suspect at all that you are not just trying to oppose China and limit China's advantage, but you are also trying to weave your economic relationships and the trade routes and what they carry with them in terms of benefits within the area and the actors that are closer to you. So it's in a way or the other, it's trying to realign the region, to organize it in a way where the economics and the strategic interests are aligned. Okay, thank you. Um, just to move to, to just a closing kind of broader question um, for everyone to, to respond to. I mean, we, we all, it's very clear that we have genocide occurring at the moment. It's very clear that there is, you know, major uh, geopolitical um, dimension and resource battles. This is part of the kind of regime change wars, the restructuring of the Middle East that we saw, you know, and those quotes from the Chilcot Inquiry at the start and so on. Um, and, you know, and we are seeing this kind of point of, I, I guess, crisis point for the Western Empire and this danger of escalation now in the Middle East. Um, what happens now? And I know I'm asking everyone to get their crystal balls out and so on and make some predictions. But, but how is this going to end? Is, is there going to be a scenario where the Western Empire is going to step down willingly, as it were? <laughs> Um, or not so much willingly, perhaps be forced to step down, or is this going to lead into a greater conflict, which will then play out and perhaps lead to the end of the Western Empire? But but where is this? You know, what is going to bring an end to this imperialism in in your view at the moment, in terms of what's happening in, in the Middle East? And I'll leave that to um, anyone who wants to jump in first with that with an answer to that. Maybe I'll uh, jump in just to say a couple of words. There are about three dynamics here, and depending on how these dynamics would work out, they're going to influence the course of events. One of the dynamics that has been established is the big wedge between Arab governments and Arab people. Will this event create another Arab Spring? There are lots of people are discussing that we may be seeing another Arab Spring where the people who felt disenfranchised and who felt their governments did not come with the kind of response they wanted. Look, in 1973, King Faisal stopped the production of oil and threatened that he would not bring back oil embargo to the West and to the countries supporting Israel until they show a change. Maybe he stopped it and uh, dismissed it before it created all its effect, but at least it showed a willingness on the part or an obligation or being forced uh, by the way he expected the reaction to be for these governments to do it. In this conflict, have you heard one single oil producer saying, I'm going to cut my production until the West would show some accommodation, some understanding, and would refrain from supporting Israel? Did not. I, I guess that this is going to be a far more uh, challenging issue. These regimes are now 
keeping this conflict going and have an interest in keeping going because they know when the guns are going to uh, stop really blazing, they have to face the chorus of their own people to see why have you, Egypt, not delivered food when you have an ish, a, a Rafah uh, passage? Why, why didn't you do more? Why did you threaten to do more? Why Saudi Arabia you didn't even mention at least a day or a week cut in the oil supply to the world. Why every other country have not really, particularly Arabs, including really Iran and others, have not come with any concrete support or at least a measured and a effective uh, initiative that would have really had some impact. So this is the first dynamic. The second dynamic, I don't think that uh, anybody in the Arab world is now unaware of the hypocrisy of the West and the way the West has completely turned its back on the massacres and on the savagery and indiscriminate bombing of people. To a great extent, countries like France that had really somehow projected itself to be independent, neutral, and not pushing the U.S. agenda. Where is that West? They all seem to be exactly on the same side and have not in any concrete way came to put an end. They refused even uh, to have a humanitarian, extended the humanitarian ceasefire. So this dynamic of where the West hypocrisy where all the masks have completely fallen, where people are now exposed for where they are. Uh, they're no longer fooling the people, talking about human rights. The third dynamic is the big difference between how the West reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how they have reacted to the invasion of Israel. I think these three dynamics are likely to play uh, and to have an influence on the course of events that are likely. Mm. Yeah, for sure, sure the double standards, etc., are absolutely crystal clear at this point. And I, I think felt by a lot of people in, in Europe on the street as well, maybe not in the elites, but certainly across populations, you know, in Ukraine as well. You know, there's a lot of unease, I think, on the German street about what's happening in Israel Gaza, which you don't see reflected in the governments and so on. Um, but, but there is one positive dynamic, and just only say one thing. And this is uh, something I have. Uh, experience firsthand in Canada is the strong support of the youth and of segments of society in the West that were willing to go on the street and were willing to lose their jobs and were willing to confront the established order, uh, standing uh, on the side of humanity and defending uh, the sanctity of life and the protection of civilians. Uh, this was never seen before. I've, I've experienced this first. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, Pierce, I, I think that this is really the, uh, I would echo a lot of what Atif says and uh, other people have about uh, many of these dynamics here. 
The U.S. position is weaker than it has ever been. I was speaking to Lawrence Wilkerson recently, and he was a Bush official uh, under, I think, in both administrations. Uh, really, he had a lower position before and was in the military. But he was saying he thinks that Israel is going to end within, you know, within a number, you know, within a decade, more or less. And that um, so when you look at the dynamics of the region and what the U.S. did, it wasn't that the U.S. was always in the pocket of Israel like this. In, ninth, in JFK was telling the uh, Ben-Gurion that he needed to end this nuclear program or aid would be cut off. And Kennedy, Ben-Gurion resigns and, you know, Kennedy's dead very shortly. Um, and then you go in the next administration, it's basically LBJ gives them a pass to attack the USS Liberty and to start that six-day war. And you got to look back and think, how do you go from Kennedy doing what he was doing? And he also wanted a solution to the Palestinian crisis as well. And then Eisenhower intervenes on the side of the global south, basically, in the Suez crisis. So how do you go from that to LBJ, this hard right turn, which is we see across the board, Vietnam, Indonesia, Congo, um, Latin America, everywhere, he re he reversed all these policies. It was a hard right turn for the U.S. empire, basically, when they get rid of, of Kennedy, who seemed to be a bridge between, you know, Cold Warrior, but also like Henry Wallace internationalism and wanting to wind down the Cold War. And then, and they didn't. They took a hard right turn. And then you have that's and and the Israel side seems to have been a part of that. And then in the seventies, um, they. You know, Nixon, after Nixon, you have the neocons come in, who now we now know as people very much uh, associated with Zionism, Rumsfeld, Cheney, right? That's who ends up uh, emerging from the chaos of Watergate. And then you have a Carter administration that's you know, kind of feckless. But then Reagan brings these guys back, all of these right-wingers. And it's as though the Watergate and the Vietnam War lessons and everything else never happened. You end up more right-wing, more aggressive, more pro-Israel than before. And that's and, and then you have the end of the Cold War. Bush tries to like deal with this and he can't. He's he's overcome uh, probably as Lawrence Wilkerson was saying to me, probably and that article that I showed as well, probably because of Israel. I think it's been hard for people to grasp how powerful Israel has been. It's it's even deeper than what Mearsheimer and Walton Mearsheimer say in the Israel mm -hmm. lobby. It's not just all of those things that you can observe. I think that they are intertwined with the clandestine side. The, the secret fascist element of the U.S., the sexual blackmail business that you see with Epstein, and who knows what else. I mean, the, and the, the Zionists are fanatical in their beliefs. And when you look at how after the end of the Cold War, and especially in the 2000s, the U.S. abandons realism. They don't even function as an effective empire because there's something at the top of the, of the apex of power, the black box that we can't see in, that is making them pursue stupid and crazy policies and these are generally things that when you look at them, you see that like, well, they are also in accordance with like hardline Zionism and nobody ever questions Zionism in the U.S. And now that we see what Israel is getting away with in broad daylight, it points to them being even more powerful than people like Mearsheimer and Walt were trying to tell us. It is, it is perhaps the explanation for how the U.S. went from doing, being a, a pretty vicious empire, but kind of a pragmatic one to being kind of insane in the 21st century to the point that we've basically lost the empire. And a lot of it is due to the consequences of these actions that were taken pretty much in accordance with what the Zionist faction of the Americans deep state would have wanted. Mm -hmm. And this is a lot for people to try to process and understand. 
it, I don't, it didn't really require me to revise my own thinking about the deep state because I basically said the same thing that, yeah, sometimes we outsource things to countries and they get powerful because they are doing, you know, dirty deeds for us. And the Israel lobby is a part of the deep state. Yeah, I said all those things before, but I don't think, I didn't really grasp how significant it was until, until this. It's, mm. it, it is uh, these two, these two projects, gl U.S. global dominance which is really a disguised fascism because they'll, they'll shoot you like JFK if you are in the way of the empire. And then there's the Israeli version of like more blood and soil, scary fascism, you know, of a German flavor. I mean, that's a, a, and really what it is ideologically. And, and there's a lot of resistance to wanting to acknowledge that. I'm not saying it's the, that it, Zionism equals Nazism. I'm just saying Zionism, as we see it unfolding now in, with Gaza as this concentration camp turned into a death camp, that it, they are, they're not the same thing, but they are the same type of thing. And this is something that more and more people are like be finding themselves unable to deny anymore. And I think that as the U.S. is materially weakening, you have this, this terrible loss of legitimacy for the U.S. and for Israel for what they are doing now. And once the reality of what we've done in Ukraine really dawns on people and it becomes totally undeniable, that's going to be even worse. I don't mm -hmm. know how U.S. hegemony can continue in this way. And thus, these are going to seem like really horrible, counterproductive moves of a dying regime uh, that has intertwined U.S. imperialism and Zionism uh, because uh, of historical accidents and circumstances. And when this dissipates, it will be for the good of mankind as long as it doesn't involve nuclear doomsday. It, it does, does seem that the Zionism is, is just part of this kind of broader feature of Western cultural super, supremacism and so on. You see it in you know, the colonialism, empire, etc. It's just one of the outgrowths of this you know, Western sense of supremacy and so on. It's our role to, to lead the world and then to do whatever we want, etc. Um, I'm conscious of time. Just Vanessa, I mean... It, is it going to require, okay, there might be this kind of gr slow grinding to a halt of, of the empire and so on. Um, is it going to, however, require some kind of defeat, some kind of distinct military defeat at some point? I mean, we've had Ukraine, obviously, and had Afghanistan and um, Syria. You know, the attempt to overthrow did not succeed, but they're still trying very, very hard. But is this going to end up in some kind of escalation followed by a significant potentially significant military defeat for the West, which is the th straw which breaks the camel's back in all of this. And is that one scenario that's possible? I think it was Edward Said that said, um, you know, the US is a super force, and a super force can only be defeated by an even greater force. I'm paraphrasing, I don't think that's the exact quotation. Um, I think what we've also seen from, from Yemen has been incredibly effective um, because it really has damaged the economy. I mean, at least you were talking about the fact that, you know, many nations hadn't responded in this way despite the proposal that was put through at the emergency Arab League uh, summit that was vetoed by uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Egypt. Um, and I, I, I think, so there's two, two um, streams here. First of all, there is the success of the Yemeni operation, for which there is potential for, for Yemen to be um, attacked, although it's undergone already eight years of, of incredible aggression 
by Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel kind of leading a proxy war against Antrullah in, in Yemen. Um, and as, as you know, the Antrullah spokespeople have said, we'll stop threatening. You know, if you're going to attack us, attack us. But so far, it's been a lot of belligerent rhetoric. Um, and they haven't actually really carried out any attacks on, on Yemen mainland. So th there's this sort of juxtaposition of, as both Gallant said, they need victory in order to survive. But how elusive is that victory really? You know, and to what extent are they prepared to, to push forward into a conflict that they cannot win. Shamin Nawani said, you're now getting this unification of Arab populations. Even if there are um, Arab countries like Saudi Arabia that are still on the brink of this normalization with Israel, the population in various recent polls has demonstrated that it's, it wants the, the genocide against Gaza and West Bank to finish. So Arab population consensus shifting away from Israel, and that's a, a, another very dangerous point. Um, so I, I guess the question is, how many lunatics are in power in the United States? How influenced are they by lunatics uh, in the Zionist far-right extremist um, factions in Israel and the United States and even in the UK? You know, how far are they going to be influenced? And you have to bring in kind of the evangelical end timers also <laughs> that believe that the world has to kind of enter an apocalypse for the coming of the second coming of Christ. I mean, you know, people might laugh about that, but that's the whole point of Al-Aqsa Temple Mount and, and all of that. So it's a big element amongst the, the Christian Zionists and the evangelicals uh, in America. So we're in a we're in a kind of very scary tipping point, as Aaron pointed out much more eloquently than, um, yeah, I'm I'm really yeah. not sure. I, I guess by by any measure, we've got quite a lot of lunatics um, at the top. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I think we should wrap up there. I see Richard's dropped off. I know that we're we're very much over time now, and and I'm very grateful to everybody for having devoted so much time to this event. I think it's been extremely valuable. Um, a lot of great important information has been disseminated through this event. Um, it is a bleak time we're in. Um, we're witnessing genocide, <clears throat> and I think we are now ended. Mike, <laughs> I'm assuming that we're. Oh, I'm still live. Okay, it doesn't appear to be. I don't appear to be still live on my screen. But um, so anyway, to wrap everything up, um, and but to uh, that myself to the seriousness of the situation. Um, yeah, we are at this point. Clearly, we we are at a point where genocide is occurring. We're at a point where there is potential for great risk of escalation in the Middle East. Certainly, time for populations to wake up if they haven't already woken up and start pushing back against their governments. And hopefully, what we've heard today from all of our great speakers, excellent speakers, um, gives some people some kind of, sort of ammunition and tools of intellectual self-defense in order to um, wake up and push back against what we're seeing at the moment. So thank you very much um, for um, 
attending and listening to this event. Um, and we hope to see you at the next event, which we will uh, surely have at some point in the near future. Thank you very much.